0: Father, as we sing those words and as we remember um, our desire, Lord, to see you in your glory, we recognize that we echo the cry and the desire of Moses to see you in all of your glory. And yet, at that time, we know that Moses was not able to see you in, in your glory, which is why you showed him the backside of your glory. But now... Because of Christ, because of what he had done for us on the cross, his death and his resurrection, we don't have to see the backside of your glory anymore. We get to see you in all your glory. We see you through Christ, who is the exact representation of your nature, the radiance of your glory. And because we have your word, we know it. Because we have your word, we long for it even more. We know that we know it in part, but we can't wait for the time where we will see it in full. And so we pray that as we study your word together this morning, that you would capture our hearts with you. That you would capture our hearts with a desire to live for you and for your glory. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to all of you, welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It's a blessing to be able to worship with you on this sunny Sunday morning. And as those of you who have been with us for the past three weeks know, earlier on in the year, it is our custom at SFBC to review aspects of the mission, vision, and values of our church. And if we at times wonder why we are here as a church, why we exist as a church. This review is meant to help us remember why we are here so that we can continue to diligently serve God for his glory. Our text this morning will be found in 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 4. We're going to end in chapter 5. And due to the length of the passage, I'm going to read the sermon text in our message this morning. But before we get into the sermon any further, let's pray uh, one more time. Our Lord, we want to see you glorified. We're grateful for your word and how it reveals more of you to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us see more of it this morning. May you magnify yourself as we look at your word, as we study it. And uh, help us, Lord, to see how great you are, how great Christ is, and may we live in light of it. It's in your sons name we pray. Amen. Well, again, over the past few weeks, we were reminded about how our mission at this church is to make disciples to the glory of God. And as a result, our vision is that we would be a sending and training center, that we send out the disciples that we train up into the world so that we can be a blessing and a testimony to all of the power of the gospel. And last week, we were reminded of the fact that Christ's servant leaders are those that God raises up to help equip those of us in the church for the task at hand. And sometimes it's not easy, right, being a servant leader, but at the same time, right, the Lord is the one who trains us up, and he helps us endure so that we can minister to others. This morning, my aim is to try and wrap up those past three weeks in one summary message. So as you've noticed, I have intentionally titled our sermon today, SF Bible's Response to the Gospel's Power. The mission, vision, and values of SF Bible is our attempt as a church to remember in a creative way what God wants a church to do here on this earth. But if we could sum it all up, what we've really been talking about over the past month is our response to the gospel's power. And because this is a bit of a summary message, I admit that there are going to be portions of the text that we go over today that are going to sound familiar. But similar to how apostles write similar things to their readers, to write and speak the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. So, I also understand that as we have a longer text, I'm sure most of you are just concerned that I'm going to hold you too long and you're going to miss the football games, right? But I understand because we have a longer text, that as I move through it, I'm going to move through it rather rapidly, you're going to feel as if maybe I haven't done my job this morning in the pulpit, right? Because there's going to be a lot of meat left on the bone, but... It's okay, maybe we'll get to it someday, but I want to help us see big picture what God has us here for on this earth. I want us to understand big picture what our church's response should be to the gospel as modeled for us by the Apostle Paul and his ministry. And so this morning, we will examine three commitments, three commitments that believers ought to have in their lives in light of the gospel. And by the way, if you would like a handout to follow along uh, uh, the, with the sermon, you can find it on our bulletin and there's, uh, there should be a handout for you there. And you can see all these points and uh, you can get the fill-in-the-blanks that I have included as well. All right, so here we have three commitments that believers ought to have in their lives in light of the gospel. The first commitment is that we proclaim the gospel. The second commitment is that we ought to keep an eternal perspective. And the third commitment is is that we live for Christ's glory. So, the first commitment that believers ought to have in their lives in light of the gospel is that we are to proclaim the gospel. The letter of 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote this letter to the Corinthians to defend his apostleship, because there were some people in the church who were questioning the legitimacy of his apostleship and his ministry. And so... Under siege by his critics, Paul writes to defend the ministry. However, he doesn't do so in a way that you and I might be tempted to do if we were in his shoes. You see, his fundamental concern was not about his credit, his fundamental concern was not about his status or how he was viewed by other people. His fundamental concern was the validity of the gospel, protecting the gospel message. Because Paul was an apostle, and was one that God used to write scripture, any discrediting of Paul would also threaten the message. After all, why would you continue to believe the things that were taught by someone who had been discredited? So, Paul, he writes to defend the ministry so that people can have confidence in the gospel that he had preached to them. And not only that, but he also wrote so that people would not interpret the suffering that he was enduring as signs that God was against him. Sometimes when we encounter suffering in life, we can think that the reason why we are suffering is because God is punishing us. We think, oh, the suffering that I'm experiencing, it's because I've done something wrong. So, God must be punishing me. Or sometimes, right, if we observe suffering in someone else's life, we look at that and we can kind of be like, uh, we can kind of have the attitude of, of the disciples in John 9 and we're just like, hey, Jesus, who sinned? This person or their parents that they're suffering through this? Yes, Paul was suffering, but it wasn't for the reason that the Corinthians believed, or at least that some of them believed. And so earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul explains to the Corinthians that the ministry that he and his team have, have, it's all about the precious gospel that saves lives. But the vessels that the Lord uses to bring the gospel to the nations, they're not made of fine china. Rather, the vessels that the Lord chooses to use to bring the gospel message to the ends of the earth are earthen vessels, common everyday mugs, if you will, to bring the precious truth of the gospel out. You guys have your favorite mugs in your cupboards, and some of those mugs, they're pristine, but some of them aren't, right? They've been through the dishwasher for a few cycles, so they're a little faded, right? Maybe some of them, because of rough handling, or whatnot, right? They have some chips in it, right? But they're still your favorite mugs. And what's important is not how the mug looks on the outside, but what's on the inside, right? Until you, as long as, as, long as the precious treasure on the inside of the mug gets to your system, you're fine, right? And in a sense, that's the, that's the same thing that we see here, right? What's more important is not whether or not the apostles are suffering, but it's about the message, the message of the gospel that they have to bring to the world. So there will be an element of suffering that happens, right? But that suffering is not enough to stop the spread of the gospel. And this is where we pick up in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 4. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe; therefore I spoke. We also believe; therefore we also speak. Paul quotes from Psalm 116.10. But he modifies the quote a little bit, right? Significantly. He's not trying to say that his suffering fulfills Psalm 116.10, but he is identifying with Psalm 116. And he is saying that the same kind of faith that the psalmist had when he believed, which led him to speak, is the same kind of faith that Paul himself has, right? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's faith in God was so sure that he believed God, he believed what God had said, and he chose to speak as a result. Why does he speak? What is his motivation for speaking? What is his motivation for continuing to proclaim the gospel, though there is suffering involved? Verse 14 knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. The absolute confidence that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he will also raise believers from the dead drives Paul's passion for proclaiming the gospel to others. And this ought to get us to think, does our confidence in God's resurrecting power, both for Jesus in the past and for us in the future, drive us to proclaim the gospel to other people. We all know intellectually that God raised Christ from the dead. And for those of us who have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus, we believe that God will also raise us up from the dead. That's a sure thing. And we know for sure that we will experience resurrection because God raised Christ from the dead. And so if we believe that this is the glorious truth of the gospel, shouldn't we also be ready and excited to share the gospel with others, even if there might be some consequences? After all, verse 15 says this, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Everything that Paul and his team endured in terms of suffering was for the sake of the Corinthians. They suffered and endured suffering so that as they kept proclaiming to the gospel, that those who believe would also join in with the Corinthians at their church. That they would have more brothers and sisters that they can have fellowship with in the church. And so that they also could be encouraged. So that they also would be motivated to share the gospel with other people. And also, God can receive the Glory. Also, that God could receive thanks. The verb spreading carries with it this idea of increase, right? An increase that leads to an abundance. But not only that, we see increase, or we see spreading paired with the verb abound. And the verb abound itself already has this idea of an abundance. And so when you see those two verbs linked together, we have this idea of an abundance that overflows. It's like when someone pours tea for you in your cup, and they just keep going, right? It's not just at the lip of the cup so that it's it's like really difficult to get it to your mouth, but it's like spilling over, right? It's on the table. That's the kind of thanks that ought to come from believers when we think about the gospel that God has given us, right? The good news that God has given us, that we've been saved from our sin, right? That should be the thanks that overflows out of us. That should be the natural result of preaching the gospel, no matter what you may endure. Because big picture, the glory of God is all that matters. We want our God to be glorified. We want overflowing thanks to pour out from those who have repented from their sins and believe in him. And we do this all because we understand the treasure of the gospel. This treasure has been entrusted to us to share with others, right? It's our responsibility to take care of it. It's our responsibility to defend it. It's our responsibility to give it to other people. And so when it comes to making disciples, brothers and sisters, let us endeavor as a church and individually to wisely but urgently share the gospel with as many people as we can. Obviously, right, if you're not allowed to have unsolicited religious conversations at work, you can't share the gospel explicitly there. Right? That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not saying you should, be, you should be aggressive and you're always forcing the gospel on other people. Right? Because if there are rules against that, well, you know, and you suffer because you broke those rules, it's not because, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus, that's why they're against me. It's like, well, no, you broke the rules at work. Right? But that's not the point. Right? That's not the point. Because if you get fired or suffer consequences for breaking work rules, that doesn't exactly glorify God. But if we are wise about it and we're praying for opportunities, the Lord may grant us those opportunities. And if we don't get many opportunities, then that's fine. But we ought to live in such a way where we increase the opportunities that we have to share the gospel with others for God's glory. You don't want to live in such a way where people look at you and they're like, I don't want what that person has. I don't want to believe the gospel that this person believes because look at them. They're the worst. Right? We want to live in such a way. We want to live in such a way where people, they want to know. They want to know why we believe. They want to know why we endure in faith. Right? And that can give us opportunity to talk about the Lord when maybe we don't bring it up, right? but they bring it up. And then loophole, we got it. then you can share the gospel. No problem. Paul's confidence in the resurrection led him to desire to share the good news of the forgiveness of sin to others. Does our love for God and our appreciation for salvation lead us to want to proclaim the gospel? Or is it just about us? Is it just about making sure that we're okay? Okay. And that, yeah, it doesn't really matter about anybody else, right? As long as I'm good, as long as I have my salvation secure for the rest of you, good luck. Is that the attitude that we have? We shouldn't, right? We should want to desire to bring the gospel to others, right? And even if we might feel nervous, even if we might feel as if we're ill-equipped to do the task, the good news of the gospel, it's too good. It's too good to keep to ourselves, I know for some of you, you guys are avid Yelpers, right? You go to a restaurant, you experience it, and you love the food. And you want to share about it with other people. Right? You want people to know, this is the best food in town. You should go try it. Right, maybe you just want elite status, but why do you, why do you share Right? Because it's too good to keep to yourself. So are we willing to get trained? Right? If the gospel is too good to keep to ourselves, are we willing to get trained? Are we willing to overcome some of that fear? And there's still fear. Right? Even if you are trained, there is still fear. Are you willing to overcome that fear and willing to share the gospel and to entrust God with the results? Right? He doesn't ask you to save nobody. Nobody. He just asks you to be faithful. He'll do the saving. He'll do the saving. And so if we as a church, if we as a church believe that the gospel must be shared, what are we willing to do to be committed to proclaim the gospel to our family members? What are we willing to do to be committed to preaching the gospel to our community? If you believe that this is what God has us to do, that this is faithfulness, well then what are you willing to do? And please hear me. I'm not rebuking you. Nor am I trying to shame you into sharing the gospel. Really, I'm trying to get all of us to think about this together. Right? If we believe this, what should we do? If we believe that we must bring the gospel to the nations, what will we do? It's good for us to have a vision to make disciples in this church. But it's not just a church leader thing. This is what ought to define all believers. Every single member. Every single attender. So, brothers and sisters, do we have the same faith as the psalmist and as Paul? Are we also so impressed with God's love that we believe and therefore we speak? This is what we must be committed to doing. The second commitment that believers ought to have in our lives in light of the gospel is that we ought to keep an eternal perspective. We ought to keep an eternal perspective. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. In light of the difficulties that Paul and his team face physically as they are committed to sharing the gospel on their missions trips, Their bodies are definitely taking a beating. But not just from the physical wear and tear of traveling and ministry, but there were other dangers that they faced too. Later on in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul details all of the things that he and his team endured as he engaged in God's mission, as he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And as you glance at what he had to go through in verses 24 through 27 of uh, 2 Corinthians 11, It's easy to think that Paul was crazy. After all, if we were in his position, right here he says he received from the Jews 40 lashes less one, right? 39 lashes, not eyelashes, right? Whippings. He received that five times, right? Why 39? Because technically by 40, you're dead. If you had a competent uh, person whipping you, right? three, three times he was beaten with rods. Once people stoned him, right? They threw stones at him. If we were in his, in his position, we would probably not want to share the gospel after the first, like, five lashes that we got. Right? Or the first time the baton comes out and we start getting beat. It's like, no thanks. I don't want that. Right? Whippings and beatdowns? No thanks. In dangers of robbers, we're out of here. Right? Here's the church. We live in San Francisco. This, this city has a, has a terrible reputation. Oh, dangers of robbers? Robbers are everywhere. So maybe you know, maybe we should get out of here. Maybe we should move the church. Maybe we should become San Francisco Bible Church of Santa Clara. But what kept Paul going, though the outer man was decaying, both naturally and at the hands of people? What kept him going? The confidence that came from the inner man being renewed day by day. We understand that the outer man refers to the physical body. The inner man is who we are on the inside. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our personality. Essentially, what we're talking about is our soul's. Our souls are being renewed day by day by God, by the gracious provision of God. Right? He renews our souls with his word. He renews our souls through worship. He renews our souls through fellowship. Right? He is the one who keeps our faith going. Right? You guys know, even from that, from that famous passage in Lamentations, right, that the mercies of God, they're new every morning. Right? That's what keeps you going, is our faith in the Lord and how he sustains you, how he keeps you up. If you want to think about it this way, God is the one who fights for you. Right? Even if we do things that are unwise, even if we do things that are sinful, right, He can work in spite of us to still accomplish His purposes. And right? for those of you uh, who call yourselves Christians, right, you know that there have been plenty of times in your life, whether it's with family, whether it's with friends, or whether it's coworkers, that you've blown it in terms of your witness. Right? That you've not done what you should have done. You've not said what you should have said. And in the process, you can bring great shame to the name of Christ. And yet, in spite of that, right, God is still Merciful. God is still gracious. Despite our failures to have a good testimony, he can still use the good parts of our lives as a form of witness to those around us. Right? So that we can say, it wasn't me. It wasn't my example. Right? It was God. God can work in spite of us. Right? He can work in spite of us. And So the mindset that God is everything, that God can take care of it all, right? That he's the one that we rely on. That can help us have a different perspective when we look at life. Verses 17 through 18. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, an unwise Christian can look at these verses and use it in a way to make those who suffer feel bad. It might not be our intention to do so, right, but we can use th- these verses to make somebody feel bad. We could point to this text right, and we could say, hey, look, Paul said that your troubles are momentary and light afflictions. So really, your afflictions aren't that bad. Just trust God. You'll be okay. Now, this is not necessarily untrue. But counsel like this is not counsel that heaves the instructions in Ephesians 4.29 on speech, particularly about speaking words that are good for edification according to the need of the moment. So, if that's the case... The purpose of these verses is not to tell people, hey, you just got to grow up. You just got to grin it and bear it. You'll be okay. That's not the point. That's not the intent. But what is Paul's intent? His intent is to help believers view their suffering for God's glory from a different perspective. So, remember, we want to keep this text in context. This is not a passage that talks about suffering in general we can apply some of the principles that we learn from this text to suffering in general. But what Paul has in mind here is the suffering that comes because we are committed to proclaiming the gospel. Or the suffering that comes because we're committed to living for Christ and we receive uh, some consequences for that. And so, when we find ourselves suffering for Christ, Paul wants us to remember that the suffering that we endure will be worth it Because of what awaits us in eternity. What awaits us in eternity makes the suffering that we endure here on this earth for Christ worth it. Paul is not trying to minimize anyone's suffering. He knows how real it can be. Because when you remember what we glanced at in 2 Corinthians 11, it's a reminder that Paul is no stranger to suffering. And his point also isn't, hey guys, look at all the things that I've survived. I've suffered far more than all of you. So don't complain, right? That's not his intent. That's not what he's saying. His point is this, the renewing of our inner man, right, the renewing of our soul as God is the one who sustains us, helps us look beyond the here and now. It helps us fix our eyes on the things that are eternal no matter what is happening to us presently. And so even if we know right even if we know that we're suffering for Christ it doesn't make it any easier does it right, if you're receiving some consequences because you want to live godly and the people around you don't want to it doesn't make it any easier does it it doesn't it still hurts we can still be discouraged We would much rather be in situations other than the one that we're in. But why? Because our focus is naturally on what is present. Our focus is naturally on what is before us. Even if we remember, oh, I'm I'm suffering for the sake of Christ, so it's okay. We remember that, we see that, but then instead of fixing our eyes on God, our eyes drop. Our eyes, instead of fixing our eyes on God, they drop. And we look at what's in front of us, what we're currently experiencing. And we're thinking, this just isn't worth it. This stinks. This hurts too much. I don't want to be here anymore. God, get me out. And it's natural to, 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 to do that, to think that. But Paul, he explains the reason why he is able to press on in the ministry of the gospel. And in doing so, he explains why we can too. It's because of this eternal perspective that we strive to have, that we fight to have. You can't have it naturally, because our natural instinct is to pity ourselves. Our natural instinct is to think, I just want to get out. But we have to keep God in. In mind, we have to keep eternity in mind. when Paul says that the affliction is momentary he 's reminding himself that in light of eternity, the suffering that he experiences in the moment it 's not the end for him. right when we suffer, right? when we suffer, a lot of times our reaction is, "I am done for my life as I know it is over." right this is the end. this is the worst. There is no hope. But what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. Don't think that. It's not over. It's not over because of who saved you. It's not over because of what awaits you. So it's momentary. It's hard to get past that. right? But when you remember, oh, no, no. God is doing something. I can trust him. I can hope in him. I can continue to place my faith in him. That makes all the difference. He says the suffering is light. It's not light in comparison to how bad it could be or how bad Jesus' suffering was, but what's the comparison? The comparison that he gives here when he says the suffering is light is that in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, the suffering is light. Glory has an eternal weight. It's beyond all comparison. And so it's almost as if you were to put suffering for Christ on one of those double-panned scales. And if you have a hard time imagining what I'm talking about, right, if you see those statues that represent justice, right, it's those scales that uh, have two different pans on them, right, and you put one thing on the other, and you're trying to get the other weight to, to balance it, if you put suffering for Christ on one part of the scale, and then you put the eternal weight of glory on the other part of the scale. It doesn't even out. It immediately goes down to the eternal weight of glory, because of that's how heavy it is. Right? That's how worth it it is. Why is it that? Why, why is it like that? Because we're not talking about a stamp card. We're not talking about your favorite coffee shops reward program when it comes to the glory that God has waiting for us in heaven. It's not like you get two ounces of glory for every one ounce of suffering that you endure, unless it's double star day, and then, you know, double the ratios. It's not that. It's not that. What God will give us is so much better. Right? What God will give us is so much better, which is why Even though Paul's eyes can be tempted to drop down and to focus on what is presently ahead of him, he fixes his eyes on what is out there waiting in eternity. Because if he dies, guess what? It's not bad for him. What does he get? The best thing ever. God. He gets God. And you can't say that God's not worth it. You cannot say... That Jesus is not worth it. And we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but I want to help you see why Paul is able to keep preaching the gospel despite these numerous life-ending events he survives. Right? They're not just life-threatening. They're life-ending. And he survives all of them. What gets him through it? Why does he keep preaching? Because he is amazed at the love of God amazement at the love that God has for us along with the corresponding desire to know God more because of our awe for Him, because of our respect for Him, that drives everything. That drives everything in the Christian life because it reminds us that there is more to life than our lives here. Sadly, many of us live as if the life that we have here on this world, on this earth, is everything. And so we try and take as much of it as we can. Right? We try to cheat the system, if you will, right? to get the most toys, to have the most wealth, to get the most glory that we have here on earth. But brothers and sisters, that's, that's not it. That's not it. This life, it's not all that we have. We have, oh, so much more in God. What awaits us in glory will be far better than any fulfillment of our earthly ambitions. What awaits us in glory will be far better than us living the life that we would love to live in our wildest dreams. That's why what happens now kind of doesn't matter, right? Because what awaits is better. Now look at the first five verses of chapter five with me. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. The temporary dwelling that our souls are currently housed in, right, this tent is temporary, it's not meant to be forever, We'll eventually be torn down in death. We know it. We feel it as the years go by. But though it is coming, we won't be homeless. Because when this earthly tent is torn down, we will inherit from God a permanent building, an eternal building, one that God himself makes for us. And when we receive our glorified bodies, they will be ours forever. No need to worry about injuries. So for those of you who are injury prone, that part of your life is gone, it's done for. No more need to worry about aging. So if you don't like aging, if every morning reminds you that you hate your life because your body betrays you, you don't have to wake up with that anymore. You probably won't sleep either. But that's the point. We don't need it. Because God gives us a glorified body and these glorified bodies will be forever. Paul mixes metaphors here. He also compares our new bodies to being clothed. Right? This groaning that he says that we have when we're longing for uh, being clothed with our dwelling from heaven, it's not a groaning of suffering, but a groaning of intense longing. It's anticipation. And we don't have time to, anticipate, uh, to explore this any further today, but this groaning that we have, it desperately desires what God will give us. But that's why we have to remember, it's not just the blessings, but it's God himself. We are waiting for that which is temporary, verse 4, that which is mortal, to be swallowed up by endless life. Endless life. Eternal life. How do we know for sure that we're going to get this? That we're going to be able to be with God and in his presence forever? Because verse 5 tells us that the very same God who says he'll do it for us is the one who's given us his Holy Spirit as a reminder that these things are ours. Right? He's the pledge. He's your redemption ticket, if you will. Right? He's your reminder that this is what's waiting for you. This is yours. This brings us to our third commitment that believers ought to have in our lives in light of the gospel. is that, that we ought to live for Christ's glory. We ought to live for Christ's glory. Verse 6 through 8. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, I know we're moving fast. We have to move slightly faster, too. But what I hope that you're seeing in this big picture view of what our response ought to be to the gospel is our response in its proper perspective. Right? We don't just do these things because we have to. We do these things. Right? We, we, we want to share the gospel. We want to keep an eternal perspective. We want to live for God's glory. All because we are driven by love for God. We want to do all of these things because we are driven by passion for God. Right? That's why we want to do all these things. Knowing that heaven awaits, knowing that fellowship with God forever in our glorified bodies awaits, is why Paul says that no matter what, he is in that constant state of being of good courage. Suffering and death for the sake of the Lord is no big deal, because we'll be with the Lord. Right now, in the life that we live, we're absent from the Lord's direct presence, but it's not like we're completely cut off, right? That's why he reminds us in verse seven, we walk by faith, not by sight. And sometimes you can't see what God's doing, right? Sometimes you don't know why he's allowing trials into your life, but you can have fellowship with him. Or you can have fellowship with him while you do your Bible reading. You can have fellowship with him while you pray. You can have fellowship with him while you come to church and you fellowship with other believers, Right, we can still have fellowship with him. We're not cut off. Right, but he gives us access to himself even now. Now it's true. Right? This is great. Oh, but heaven, it's so much better. Right? That's very, very true. We would prefer to be at home with the Lord. Right? To be in his direct presence. That would be the best thing ever. And it is the best thing ever. But we should not so easily discount the blessing of being in fellowship with God now. Right, but in order to do so, it does require that we have a desire to please the Lord in all that we do. Right, not just showing up on a, on a Sunday during the middle of the week, right, but in all that we do. Right, a desire to please the Lord, to glorify Christ in all of our lives. That should color our perspective on everything. Verses 9 and 10. Therefore, we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. No matter what we do, whether we're home or with the Lord, right, it should be our ambition. It should be our highest goal to be pleasing to God. Why? Well, Partly because we know that every Christian must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must give an accounting for all that we do. Now we know that all of our sins have already been paid for in Christ. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if there is no condemnation for sin, then what is this judgment that all Christians will experience before the judgment seat of Christ? Well, the word for judgment in Greek in this particular text is the word bima. So you may have heard people talking about the bima seat judgment, right, in your theological conversations or whatever. Right, and the, and um, the judgment or bima seat was a platform from which a ruler would make judgments or rulings. So if you want to think about it this way, right, Pontius Pilate, when he was, when he was, uh, evaluating Christ and his claims, right? And the claims being brought before, uh, before him by the religious leaders. He was on a judgment seat, right? A judgment platform as people were presenting to him uh, their case, right? And so he made his ruling from there. In this particular case now, with, with us appearing before Je- Christ's judgment seat, we as Christians will, re- will receive back what we deserve for what we've done in this life. Right, he will reward us according to what we've done in this life. Everything will be taken into account right, because our Lord sees all. He knows not just what we did, but why we did it. And so this is per- the purpose of this judgment is reward, right, but the ideas of pleasing God and earning rewards from God also ought to get us thinking. Do we strive to please God in our lives now? Is this our attitude? Do we care that God will evaluate us for all our deeds, good or bad, in the future? Or do we just presume on God? We presume on his grace, and we just don't care how we behave because, hey, I prayed the prayer when I was five. I walked down the aisle. I threw my card in the fire, and so I'm good, right? Everything's paid for. That's what you said, Pastor. Pastor. Is that our attitude? Or, because we love God. Because we love God. Because we want to be pleasing to Him in every aspect of our life. We say, no. I I don't care how tempting these sins are. I will put those aside. And I will pursue God with all that I got. With all of the grace that He provides. Because He's worth it. Now I understand, right, our commitment to live for Christ's glory in our lives, they're obviously not where they should be, right? We can all do better, right? There are sinful things in our lives that pull our attention away from God, right? And it gets us focused on ourselves. Those I don't really need to explain, right? But there are also good things in our lives that pull us away from loving God and living for his glory. Or for instance, right, some of those good slash neutral things that can be good and that can distract us from loving God and living for his glory are our careers. Right? Or if you're, not, if you're not working, your career is your school. right? Our careers. Our careers, they're not a bad thing. right? We are told that we should work. Working is a good thing. But when we're working, right, we can get so caught up with the work that's right in front of us that we're not necessarily thinking about how we can please God, right? We're not thinking about his glory. We're just thinking about, hey, I have a deadline. I need to get it done. And I know that's not just you guys. That could be me here too, right? And I work at the church. So this is not a condemnation of good things, right? Our families can distract us too. But I'm not saying you should jettison your family and live by yourself, right? Because that's not faithful. So it's not a condemnation of those good things, but a reminder that even in our pursuit of those good things, we should aim to be mindful of the Lord as we go about pursuing those good things. When you work, you don't work just to please man. right? That's people pleasing. That's fear of man. We don't work just for their pleasure. If you work better when your boss is around and only when your boss is around, that's a problem. Right, because that's people-pleasing. <clears throat> and the same can be said if, um, if you're always constantly trying to go above and beyond, too. right? Because that's still people-pleasing. But what Paul tells us in Colossians 3 is that we are not to work to please man, but to please who? God. Right, you remember that he's your boss. He's the one that you give an account to. We should remember that, ultimately, everything that we do should Be to please God, it should be to glorify God. So, verse 11 to 13. So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We have been made manifest to God, and I hope that we have been made manifest also in your consciousness. <clears throat> we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to boast of us, so that you will have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. In light of the mindset of wanting to please God in everything. That Paul does. Paul mentions his motivation for ministry despite the opposition that he faces. He's driven by the fear of the Lord. And this is not fear of like terror, right? That he's terrified of the Lord. It's not terror, it's reverential awe. It's reverential awe, it's amazement. It's a love for God and a desire to please God that drives Paul to do ministry, even if that very ministry threatens his life. Or as we can see in verses 12 through 13, leads to claims that Paul is an attention grabber or that Paul is a crazy person. He doesn't care what people will say because whether he is seen as crazy or in his right mind, everything that he does is for the Lord. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died and he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf i've mentioned it already but paul's awe of god his amazement at god and towards the gospel is what controls him and this control isn't a control like you know a puppet master but is a sense of overwhelming compulsion there is no other option right? he could not Help it. There is no other proper response to the gospel but to serve Christ, but to live for Christ, to adopt Christ's mission, to to adopt Christ's vision, if you will, to adopt Christ's values. Why? Because Christ died and rose for all. So that all who are saved would not live for ourselves and our own ambitions and our own passions, but for him. For him. And you notice, Paul includes everyone who Christ died for here. Living for Christ, living to glorify Christ, is not something limited to the spiritual leaders of the church. It's not limited to the people who are readers. I know for some of you, you're like, well, you know, I would love to learn more about God, but I'm just not a reader. It's not limited to just the people who read. It's not just limited to the people who like to listen to sermons in their pastimes or when they're getting ready. Living for Christ is something that applies to the youngest believer among us. Maybe that's a four-year-old, maybe that's a five-year-old. All the way to the oldest believer among us. Now, I ain't going to out any of you on that one, but you get what I'm saying, right? It, living for Christ and for his glory applies to the youngest of us all the way to the oldest of us. Brothers and sisters, are you amazed at the gospel? And does that amazement lead you to want to do everything that you can do with God in mind by God's strength? by God's grace, right? Does that motivate you to want to live for him and his glory? And of course, this doesn't mean that you always have to be in service mode at all times in your life, right? Because we don't need to have a competition to see who can be here first in the morning and last at night. Because we already know who that award goes to. I'm not imagining right, that's names. Not, that's not what we're talking about here, right? You can rest the glory of God too. Or You can have fun to the glory of God, too. Right? Go on vacation. And when you go on vacation, give thanks to God for the fact that you can go on vacation. Give thanks to God that the, that the tin can that you're flying in keeps you alive, and that you don't die, right? and that you can travel all the way across the world in, like, what, a day? And right? when you get there, give thanks to God when you see his creation and you see his handiwork, and pray earnestly for those people that you see who are unsaved. You can do all that to the glory of God. The point is this. Do you love God? Do you love God? And if you say, yes, that's great. But how? How are you loving God? as one of our elders reminds us at our elders meeting when we talk about love for God, how do we quantify that? Or how do we measure whether we really are loving God? Most of the time, we point to what we do, right? We point to all the stuff that we do for God and for his glory. But you know as well as I do that just because you do stuff doesn't mean that you love God. Right? The people in Matthew 7 who say, Lord, Lord, Look at all the stuff that we did for you. Right? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Right? So how do we quantify it? How are we gauging whether we love God or not? And that's the crucial question we must consider and look back on when we consider our response to the gospel and his power. I'm not going to explore that with you any further because my time is gone. And so you're going to have to do the legwork on that one. But it's, it's good leg, legwork, I promise. This morning we had a chance to summarize our series of the mission, vision, and values as we looked at what our natural response ought to be to the gospel's power. And we saw this from a big picture view as we saw those three commitments that we ought to have in our lives in light of the gospel. We ought to be committed to proclaiming the gospel to others. We ought to be committed, no matter how difficult suffering for Christ may be, to keep an eternal perspective. And we ought to be committed to live for Christ's glories. Now, we may not be perfect in these commitments, right, but we remember that God's grace both covers and makes up for our struggles and failures to live and work for God's glory. So don't be discouraged. But as we consider the overall power of the gospel. Let us take some time to reflect for ourselves how we might continue to grow in our love for our Lord, in our love for his church, in our love for the world around us. And before we sing in response, let me provide you with some discussion questions, some devotional considerations. Who are some people that we would like to proclaim the gospel to this year? You don't have to list 20. One or two. Right? Who are some people that God has on your mind that you would like to proclaim, try to proclaim the gospel to this year? Number two, how can an eternal perspective help us think about church, fellowship, and ministry? Right? We often get busy with the busyness of church. But how can an eternal perspective help us reevaluate how we think about church and being with God's people? Number three, how can we grow in our love for God and how can we grow in our passion for his glory? Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful to you for your word and for the model that we have in Paul, for how he shows us how we might live in such a way where everything is done for you and everything is about you not because we have to, but because we love you. And so we pray, oh Lord, that you would increase in us a love for you, a passion for you, so that everything that we do is colored by that passion for you. Help us, Lord, to love you with all that we got, with all of your grace. so your son's and we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.